My name's Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, it's a privilege to be your pastor. As Shay said earlier, we took a two and a half day retreat up at Tahoe uh, as a pastor to plan for next year. And being away, I, we just were all baffled. I mean, not baffled. We love you. We love you. We're not baffled that we love you. Um, but it is enjoyable to be a pastor and like look forward to come back to your congregation. And so I, I just want you to know that I love you guys. And uh, if you're a guest with us here today, uh, you, welcome. Welcome to Living Stones. You may be somebody who it has a lot of questions. You may be somebody who says, I'm not sure what I believe spiritually. Uh, I just want you to know that you're welcomed here and we're honored that you're here. We are gathered here today to meet together with God. That's why we gather here today because we believe that God wants to meet with us. And you may see, see some people like during the music raising their hands. They're not doing a new version of raising the roof. That's not what they're doing. Uh, we believe at Living Stones that we're embodied souls and that we worship God not just with our thoughts but with all of our actions. And so when people are raising their hands to God, they're giving praise to him and they're saying, we love you and we wanna, we wanna focus on you and your love. And so today we're in uh, Romans chapter seven. And so if you don't have a Bible open for the reading that we just did, make sure to grab one or still your neighbors and open up to Romans seven, which is on page 943 in the Bibles that we set around the room. And uh, we've been going through this um, book for a while. And in this section that we're about to read, the Apostle Paul, who penned this letter a long time ago, is going to use an illustration of marriage. And he's using marriage to make his final argument in this thing that he's been talking about for the last few paragraphs. And it makes me think of my marriage. I've been married for 10 years. And... Um, when I got married, everything in my life changed for the better. Uh, when I got married, it changed how I spent my money, right? When I got married, it changed how you spend your time. Before, I was just focused on what I wanted to do, but now I'm married. So it's about what we, she wants to do and what we want to do together. Uh, before... Uh, I got married, it changed how, where I focused my energy. Before I got married, it changed how I did the dishes. <laughs> Whether I did the dishes. <laughs> I remember doing laundry. I, when I was a bachelor, I just put everything into the same load. I didn't have them separated out according to color. Everything was just washed all at once. But then I got married and that changed. <laughs> Marriage changes us, doesn't it? And if you're not married, think about, you know, the people in your life who you do know that are married. And when you really love somebody and you're united to them in that covenant of marriage, it does and should change you. I remember because we got married young, a bunch of my friends started actually getting angry with us because they were saying, you're not hanging out with us anymore. Like, what's up? And I was like, I'm married now. I can't be playing poker every night till two in the morning. I have to get a job that like pays money so that I can survive and provide for my wife. Uh, I can't go camping every weekend. I can't uh, do all these things. When I'm married, it changes my priorities. And what the Apostle Paul is trying to say in this part of the letter is he's saying, as Christians, we are married to Jesus. We're united to him in marriage to Jesus, and that should change everything about your life. You can't go on married to Jesus and live as if you weren't. And so he's addressing people who are calling themselves Christians, but they're Christians by name only. But their life doesn't match up. 
And so you might be somebody here and you're saying, I'm not a Christian, but you're watching the people who call themselves Christians. And I just want you to know that there's a lot of people who call themselves Christians, but they're not because their life doesn't match up to it. Because you cannot go on saying, I'm united to Jesus, but I'm still gonna live my way. That's not Christianity. Christianity says, I'm captivated by the love of Jesus that I'm uniting my whole life to him and it changes everything. And so what I wanna draw our attention to is verse one of chapter seven. If you would read it with me, it says this, or do you not know brothers? Let's pause there. Paul uses these four words, do you not know? And these words are actually gonna be very important for us this morning as we learn how to interpret what he has to say in this passage. Um, what I want you, everybody look at your Bibles. See how you have numbers in your Bibles? There's big numbers and the little numbers. The big numbers are chapters, they call those chapters, and the little numbers are verses. But when the Bible was originally written, those numbers and verses, those, those numbers weren't in your Bible. Uh, those were added in the 1500s to help us navigate the Bible. Thank the Lord, right? So now the pastor can get up and say, turn to this page and you know where to go. But before this was just one continuous letter without any numbers in it. And sometimes it's helpful to step back and realize that this is one continuous thought. Because sometimes when we approach the text and we just look at the passage we read, but we forget about what was said before it, we're actually gonna misunderstand it. And today what I want us to understand is those four words, do you not know, are used in, the, in some of the previous paragraphs. It's used in uh, chapter 6, verse 16, and also chapter 6, verse 3. And what that means is that Paul is concluding an argument with another illustration. And his argument is based on a misunderstanding of this Christian concept we call grace. And at Living Stones, we love grace, don't we, church? We love grace. Here's what grace is. Grace is blessing when you deserve a punishment. Grace is when the Bible says that we are born in our sins and that we actively rebel against God and the consequence of our sin is death, but grace is that God sent Jesus to live a life on our behalf and to face the death that we deserved. That's grace, so you can be forgiven. And so now if you believe in Jesus, you can be declared right and it's not anything you earned. Grace is that you don't have to clean yourself up to get to God. God came to you. That's grace. Grace is the love of God that is a no matter what kind of love. It's a love that looks at you and says, I love you and there's nothing that you can do that will stop me from loving you. That's grace. In fact, grace goes even further than that, doesn't it? It's God saying to us, I love you and there's nothing you can do that can make me love you more. And there's nothing that you can do that can make me love you less because you are in Jesus Christ and I love you with a perfect, everlasting, and eternal love. That's grace. And so we love grace. But what was happening in the Roman church, and it happens in our church here today, and it happens in all of our hearts, is that these people were saying, well, wait a second. Since I didn't earn this, and since God just forgives me and I didn't earn anything, I guess that just means I get to keep on sinning, doesn't it? Like if I am just forgiven... And I did nothing to do, I, I, I did nothing to earn that forgiveness. Don't I get to keep on sinning? And what's Paul's answer to this, church? What is it? By no means, which is an emphatic H-E double hockey sticks, no. <laughs> no! Some of the versions you might have with your Bibles will say, God forbid Christians say, I'm forgiven by God, I guess I get to go sin. God forbid 
And then he uses three illustrations. And they're marked by those words, do you not know? The first illustration is, do you not know that you've been brought from death to life? The second illustration is, do you not know that you're no longer a slave to sin? You're bound to God. And now the third illustration, which we're going to get into chapter 7, is do you not know that you are no longer married to the law? Now you're married to Jesus. You're married to Jesus. So do you see how understanding, taking a step back and looking at the whole context actually helps us understand what we're about to read? He's saying we're married to Jesus. And if you're married to Jesus and you know it, you won't go on living to break his heart. That's his main point. If you know you're married to God, you won't live like you want to break his heart. You'll live actually the opposite. And so in verse 1, he continues on with this statement. He says, the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. So Paul brings up this concept of the law, which we just watched that video about. The law. And the law is actually very important in these verses. Paul mentions it eight times in six verses. So it's kind of a big deal. And the word law, he's referring to his brothers who understood this, but I know in our culture we don't understand a lot of times what the Bible's meaning on it, but here's what the law means. In short, the law means God's commands. It means God's rules, the, the things that he prescribes us to do and obey in the Bible. Formally speaking, Paul was referring to the 613 commands in the Old Testament that God gave Israel at Mount Sinai through the prophet Moses. The summary of the moral aspect of those commands is known as the Ten Commandments. But these rules were given to Israel for three reasons. One, it was to instruct them in how they ought to ceremonially worship God. God is a perfect being. He's perfectly holy. He's, he's totally unlike us. And so the question would arise, how can sinful, messed up, jacked up people worship a holy God where their, God provided ceremonial laws to instruct them on how to worship? The second thing that it did is it showed them morally what God expected on how they should regard their life to God and to each other. So this is like, you can see this in the Ten Commandments. And then the third thing that those 613 laws did is they showed them how they were to operate as a nation. So God gave them instruction on on what they were to do as the nation of Israel. But God's great purpose for the law was twofold. The first, it was to show us how good God is. When you look at the laws of God, you should see how good he is. Only a good God would say, this is what I want for my world. I want a world that doesn't commit adultery. I want a world that doesn't live into idolatry and start worshiping created things as if they were created God. I want a world that, that doesn't lie. I want a world that doesn't steal. I want a world that, that doesn't covet. That shows us that we have a really good God. In fact, you should be able to look at the law and say, wow, that God is so good, I want to follow him. Amen. This is why Psalm 19 and Psalm 119 praise the law as beautiful. And multiple times in it, they say that your law is sweeter than honey and more valuable than gold. Amen. Think about that for a Christian, for a second Christian. God's commands are more valuable than gold. If you had to choose between the Bible or a bag of gold, which would you choose? <laughs> We're all like, the gold. <laughs> but no, that's because we don't understand how beautiful God's law is. It's because we don't understand the, the nature of God who's giving us this. I mean, at the end of the day, you can't take gold with you, but you can always have God. And so we, we cherish what God has to say in his command. So the first great purpose of the law is to show us the beauty of God. 
The second great purpose of the law is this. It's to point out our flaws so we know we need him to be our savior. So God gives us his law to expose our sins so that it would expose our need to rely on his savior, Jesus Christ. So in some ways you can think of the law like a map. Like the map will show you the way to get from point A to point B. And if you get lost, it'll show you how far you've gone astray. But the map in itself does not have the power to get you back on track. It can't be your savior, but it can show you where you've gone astray. Or another way you can think about it in a medical example, you know when you go into the doctor's office and there's always the picture of the guy on the wall with all the muscles and bones and he's always like this, you know, and he's got his hands facing forward, his head to the other side and it's just like the muscular and physiological structure of the human. And this is, that's like the law. That's what you should look like when your bones are in place and your muscles are all doing what they're supposed to do. But the law also is like when you go in with a hurt arm and you get an x-ray and it reveals that it's broken and the doctor compares it to the the picture on the wall and says, yeah, you don't look like you should. But here's the deal. The x-ray has no power to be the doctor. It can only point out the flaws. And so for this reason, the law is insufficient for salvation. The law, God's commands, is not enough for you to be saved because it only points out how far you've actually gone. And so for this reason, God has promised in the Old Testament that he would send something better than the law. And he would enact a relationship and a covenant with his people, not based on the law, but based on his son, Jesus. And this is actually how the Bible is broken up. There's an Old Testament, which would be better translated Old Covenant, which was formed around the giving of the law. And then there's a New Testament, which would be better translated New Covenant, which is formed around God giving his son. And it's much better because here's the reality. Our relationship with the law, the only thing we can do with it is break it. Even the laws we create. I mean, consider for a moment, if you were to be judged by the standards by which you judge others, how are you doing with that? We even break the laws we create, let alone the ones that God's give us. So we need something better than laws. We need something better than rules. We need a savior, Jesus Christ. And Paul's good news of this passage is that God has given us his, his person and, and we're to be united to him in marriage instead of still being bound to the law. And so in verses one through three, he says this, for a married man is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Okay, so here's what Paul just did. He just gave an illustration. Let me break it down for you. He says, if Sue marries John and they're in marriage, but then Sue meets another man and decides to go and live with him, she's an adulteress. But... If Sue marries John and they're happily wed together, but then John dies, Sue at that point, because John died, is free to marry whomever she wants. And at that point, she's not committing adultery because her first marriage has ended because John died. And what Paul's gonna say, look at verse four. Likewise, my brother, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. What he's saying is when Jesus died on the cross, he was dying so that we would die to the law. 
In other words, that the law's consequences would not hang over us anymore. The law prescribes that if you break it, you must die. But Jesus died on our behalf. And so what that means is this, is that when Jesus died on the cross and resurrected from the grave, he ended the first marriage that his people had with the law to give us a better one, a relationship with him, which is what it continues on. It says, he died so that you may belong to another, to him who's been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. What this is saying is that as Christians, we no longer have a marriage with the law of God that is ended. And that's good. And here's the reason why it's good. Because the law arouses sin within us. The law arouses sin within us. Look at verse five. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. That's kind of a weird thing to say, isn't it? How could something given by God that's pure and beautiful and good arouse sin within us? Well, I'll tell you how. There's two words. There's two ways that the, that the law of God arouses sin within his people. And, and the first way is we're going to use a word called legalism. And the second way is a word called license. Okay, now, legalism. God's intention of the law is so that we would know our need for a savior. But legalism twists God's law to treat it like a checklist. And so you know that you're being a legalist when you have this kind of thinking in your mind. God will love me if I dot, dot, dot. Or God will love me more if I dot, dot, dot. Or God will love me less if I dot, dot, dot. When we have that kind of thinking, we're being legalist because we're adding we're making the law something that it's not meant to be. Um, so how, you know, sometimes we approach it like this. God will love me if I read my Bible. God will love me if I dress nice. God will love me if I'm a nice person. God will love me if I vote according to our particular political party. God will love me if I take a particular stance on social justice issues. God will love me if I avoid rated R movies or stop cussing. God will love me if I pay a tithe. God will love me if I raise good kids that are well behaved. God will love me if I do this. God will love me if I do that. And he'll love me less if I don't do those things. When we have those kind of thinking in our mind, we become legalist and thus pervert what the law of God is supposed to be. Jesus plus nothing is everything. But as soon as we try to say Jesus plus something, we lose everything. The law of God is meant to point out our flaws, not give us a checklist. Another way that the law arouses sin within us is licentiousness. If you look again at verse five, it says, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. In other words, what it's saying is um, our sinful passions were aroused by the law in the flesh. When the Bible uses the word flesh, it's referencing humanity apart from the spirit of God. It's, it, we live in the flesh whenever we say, God, I want to do things my way instead of your way. That's life in the flesh. And that's naturally who we are apart from Jesus. In other words, it's a word for rebellion, what happens when you tell a rebellious person not to do something? They do it. 
You put a rebellious kid in the car and say, hang tight, don't honk the horn, what are they going to get up and do? They're going to honk that horn. It's the proverbial, don't push the red button. It's like, I got to see what's going to happen. You push the red button. And so the law arouses sin within us because by nature, we are rebellious people. And so what this means is when we hear don't do this and do this, actually, we, we start to say in our soul, no, I got to do that. And we get some sort of weird exhilaration or, or weird adrenaline rush by breaking the laws of God. Have you ever thought about that? Why is it that we get such an adrenaline rush from doing what God says not to do, from lusting or adultery or lying or gossiping. We get an adrenaline rush, don't we? And maybe the reason we love those things is not because we love the thing themselves, we love the adrenaline rush of breaking God's law. It's exhilarating. But Paul says that in verse five, it says that, but living like this bears the fruit of death. In other words, sin may be exhilarating, but it always destroys you. Life apart from God, because God is a life-giving spirit, life apart from God always destroys you. It destroys you spiritually. It destroys you relationally. It destroys you physically. So therefore, don't live married to the law because it arouses the sin within us. It arouses the sin within us. And this is so true. Like as a pastor, I get a ringside seat to a lot of life. And here's one thing I've noticed, that those who have households that are more legalistic and law-driven have a lot of secret sin and it's very bad. The perversion is to the third degree. The adultery is higher. The hatred and bitterness and anger is higher than those who live in a grace-driven home. The law arouses sin within us. Therefore, we need a marriage better than the law because our marriage relationship with the law is a dysfunctional marriage at best. And not because the law is messed up, but because of we are. So what this means is, as Christians, we don't need good advice. We don't need the power of positive thinking. We need a savior. We need to be united to a savior. Well, the good news is that's exactly why Jesus came. Look at verse four. It says, likewise, my brothers, you also have died through the law, or died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. God gave Jesus that we might be united to him in marriage. And so remember, this is Paul finishing his argument that he's been making through all of chapter six. He says, in the same way that God made you dead to sin and alive to God, in the same way that God has freed you from slavery to sin and and given you a new master of Jesus. Now God has delivered you from the marriage to the law and given you a new marriage to him instead. You are married to him. Um, Our relationship, marriage relationship with the law was a bad dysfunctional marriage because it only told us what to do but never gave us the power to do it. But our relationship with Jesus is much different and much better. If you notice, Paul calls Jesus in verse four, the Christ. And as we talk about a lot at Living Stones, Christ is not Jesus's last name. It's his title. And what it means is it's the anointed one sent by God to deliver his people. And here's how that applies to us in our relationship with the law. Where the law abandons us to death, Jesus came to take our death. Where the law says, meet this requirement, Jesus, knowing our inability, met the requirement on our behalf. 
Where the law says do, Jesus on the cross cried out, done, it is finished. Where the law holds us captive, Jesus sets us free. Where the law tells us what to do but does not help us obey, Jesus shows us what to do and then gives us his Holy Spirit so that we can obey. And where the law arouses sin within us, Jesus arouses obedience because he invokes love in our hearts. And so if you know that you're married to Jesus, you won't go on living to break his heart. And if you do go on living to break his heart, if your attitude is, well, I'm forgiven, I guess I get to do whatever I want and sin however I want, then you still have a checklist mentality of your relationship with God. A checklist mentality of our relationship with God says, I obey God because I have to. But a love mentality with God says, I obey God because I want to. That's the Christian mentality. Philip Yancey, a great author, comments on this particular passage. And he says this passage reminds him of a time when he was in college and he had to take a class to get his degree and the class was German. And so he said while all of his friends were out at the lake and having a good time and out at coffee shops, he was learning how to count to a thousand or something in German. He was learning the language of German and he hated every minute of it. And he said, what if my professor came to me and said, you don't have to do anything in this class. Your grade is already turned in. You can do whatever you want. He says, with a checklist mentality, do you think I would have gone to class? No, (laughs) I would be out at the beach. And then he asks the question. He says, but what would make me want to go to class and learn German? And he says, I can only think of one reason why. If German was the language my wife spoke. Because then I would be the best German student ever. (laughs) I'd be learning words so I could write her love letters. I'd be doing everything I can. I would always be saying, look at this word I learned. Look look at this sentence I I, I learned how to do today. Because I want to communicate with you. I want to be close to you because I love you. See, that's the difference between a religious life and a Christian life. A religious life says, I must do these things to earn my way to God. But the Christian life says, God has already given me favor. I want to do these things because I want to be close to him. I want to be close to Jesus, and I can't do that while I'm running away from him at the same time. Yet that's what we're doing every time we live into sin. We're running away from him. And so I think what Paul is doing here is he's putting the nail in the coffin to his argument that he's been making for the last several paragraphs. Why don't we keep on sinning? Love. Nothing is more powerful than love. His first illustration was death and life. His second illustration was slavery. And now the nail in the coffin is we don't keep on sinning because we love our Lord. You know, as a married man, there's lots of times where I would sometimes wish I could just go live in the mountains. Because life is hard, right? And being in a marriage relationship is difficult. Amen, church? And I sometimes daydream about becoming a mountain man and just living out in the woods. But I forfeit that desire for the greater desire of being close to my wife. And I would do it every day of the week. Um, consider, at the beginning, I, I told you that my friends got upset because I started hanging out with my wife instead of them. Imagine the opposite. Imagine a life where I get married, but then I'm still living life as if I'm not. I'm still playing poker till two in the morning, still going on these camping trips. 
You know what they would say to me eventually? They would say, dude, aren't you married? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but here's the thing, Christians. A lot, of the, a lot of the world that is not Christians are looking at us and saying, dude, aren't you a Christian? Aren't you supposed to be united to Jesus? Aren't you supposed to be like loving him and following him? What's up with that? Like, why are you still doing these things if you say Jesus is the most important thing in your life? The answer is he's probably not. And so this is Paul's appeal to us. I want you to notice that he uses the word brothers two times, which would more properly be translated brothers and sisters. His appeal to us is this, brothers and sisters, don't you know the love of Jesus? Don't you know the love of almighty God, our Christ? Because the question we have to ask is this, if, if love is the true source for our desire to live in obedience, how do we grow in love for God? Well, you can't dig down deep and pull yourself up by the bootstraps. That won't help. It's gonna be an empty well there. He says actually how to do it. He says, so now we serve in the new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the written code. The only way for us to grow in the love for God is if God's Holy Spirit magnifies his love for us. You cannot grow in your love for God unless you regularly reflect on God's love for you. And I wanna lead us into a time of doing that right now as a congregation. And the way that we're gonna reflect on God's love for us is simply in the name of Jesus. Jesus's name is not just another name like Albert. Jesus's name is packed with meaning. First of all, it's a personal name. When the first century Jews would have heard the name Jesus, it would have reminded them of a similar sounding name, Yahweh. And they would have reflected on God's personal nature. And here's the reality, church. God has no interest in you knowing him and him knowing you from afar. The almighty God of the universe is a personal God. He's a God unlike any other religion because he, he's almighty and he wants to be close to you. So consider that for a moment. The God who's holding us just the right distance enough away from the sun so that we don't burn and also just the right distance enough so we don't freeze wants a personal relationship with you. The God who's expanding galaxies and blowing up stars wants a personal relationship with you. The God who's guiding asteroids through space so that they don't hit us and kill us wants a personal relationship with you. The God who guides hurricanes, the God who cares for all the life in the jungles and the sea, that God wants you and wants you to know him intimately and deeply. That's so cool. It's very personal. Another thing about the name of Jesus is the name literally means God saves sinners. And I want you to reflect on this. Sinners. It doesn't say God saves good people. It doesn't say God saves people who have their act together. It doesn't say God says, uh, saves people who have good families. No, it says God saves sinners. The broken, the messed up, the unwanted, those who know that their life is a mess. Jesus himself said, I am a doctor and I didn't come to heal the righteous. I came to heal the broken. And that's good news because we're all broken. And maybe Jesus isn't good news to you because you don't know that you're broken or you don't want to admit it. But and the name of Jesus actually invites us not to hate ourselves because it reminds us that in our brokenness, we find him. We find who he really is. And then lastly, it, it says not just that God helps sinners, 
says that Jesus saves sinners. That's what his name, it means God saves sinners. That's what Christ means. The word Christ means that God pursues sinners. The narrative of the Bible is this, that God longs to have a marriage with his people and he enters in, but what do we keep on doing? We go and commit adultery on God all the time. We go and we give ourselves to creative things as if they could satisfy us instead of him. And yet God still pursues us. He's still the Christ. Jesus is not some self-help guru. Jesus is not a good example. He's the savior of sinners. Sinners cannot save themselves. No amount of positive thinking will help your life. You need a savior. You see, that's what the problem of the law is. The law just tells you what to do, but it doesn't save you. But Jesus is much better because he took the punishment that the law requires, which is death. And when he came for you, he lived for you, and he died on the cross for you, and he resurrected for you because he wants to be close to you. And so that means that the cross is not just some historical event. It's something that happened for you. That when you were hanging on the cross, it was because God wanted you, because God loves you, and even because God likes you. You're not annoying to God. God's not like, man, I wish this guy would stop praying to me. <laughs> you are not annoying to God. In fact, God would rather go to hell than lose you. Wow. And that's what he was doing on the cross. He was embracing the wrath of God. That's why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he was being separated from the love of, of the Father for you so that you could be brought into the love of God. You will never treasure Jesus until you see him treasuring you. And that is what the cross is about. The cross, we wonder, why is the cross the emblem for Christianity? It's because it's where we see his love. It's because we see him treasuring us. And guess what? A life of obedience to God is a life of sacrifice. But that will never happen in your life until you see him sacrificially treasuring you. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you have to die to yourself. Meaning being a Christian is going to be hard and there's going to be a lot of things that you wish you could do, but you're going to choose not to do because you see Jesus first sacrificially treasuring himself or treasuring you, giving himself for you. And how do we know this? It's by the work of the Holy Spirit. So brothers and sisters, do you know the love of God? Has it changed you? This invitation is for everybody here. It's for all of you. Maybe you say, I understand it, but you only understand it as a fairy tale, not as historical fact. And if that's you, you need to know that Jesus dying on the cross is historical fact. There was a guy named Pilate, a Roman officer, governor. He condemned Jesus to death. Jesus died. Historically, it's, it's proven to be true. It's a fact. Maybe you understand it as historical fact, but you're not moved because you don't think it's something done for you. But you need to read your Bible and see that when Jesus was dying there on the cross, he was dying for you. And one way that you can understand that it's for you is you have to look at all the personal encounters that Jesus had with people. He was very interested in the personal being of every person. And then lastly, you may be sitting here and saying, I know, I know, God loves me, but it's not moving you currently emotionally right now. Like you're not just breaking out in tears. But just because you're not moved emotionally by it right now doesn't mean it's not true. My family, we say I love you thousands of times a day. 
And sometimes it moves us to tears and sometimes it doesn't. But just on the times that it doesn't, doesn't make it any less true. And so for all of us in this room right now, you need to look at the cross and realize God loves you. And for some of you, that's going to lead you to tears today. And for others of you, you're just going to get up and say, I know. And it's just as much good news. It's just as much good news. So church, if you understand that you're wed to Jesus, don't go on living to break his heart. Turn to him instead. Let's pray. God, we love you so much. Thank you for loving us. We know that the only reason we love you is because you loved us first. And we just, we confess our disconnect, God. We, we confess our misunderstanding of grace. We confess that we wanna have a checklist approach to you because we wanna be forgiven and then go on living however we wanna live. And we ask that you'd forgive us for that. But more so, we, just, we ask that you would impress the love of Christ deeply into our hearts. Because the truth is, is when we feel like we have to earn our way to you, we constantly feel like failures. And we're afraid of the consequences of that, and we walk in shame. But when we know and we can see at the cross that you love us with a no matter what kind of love, it's only then that we can be set free. And so I pray over this congregation right now that you would set us free from captivity to law-based thinking, and you would bring us into reality of this freedom that we have in Christ.